0: Welcome to Neuroethics Today, a science and society
1: podcast about emerging ethical and societal implications of neuroscience research and neurotechnology. In this show, we'll interview experts in the fields of neuroscience, neuroethics, and neurotechnologies. We will highlight pressing questions, discuss thought-provoking ideas, and raise awareness on the importance of neuroethics in our daily lives. Keep listening to Get Curious and Critical. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Neuroethics Today. Today with me is Dr. Veronica Schupf. Dr. Veronica Schupf is currently the head of the Department of Natural Sciences and Engineering at the Austrian Science Fund in Vienna and uh, used to be a uh, professor of olfaction and neuroimaging at the Medical University of Vienna and the University of Graz. Thank you very much for being with me today and uh, for discussing a very timely and very important topic, given the recent events um, in the United States with the Supreme Court overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. And as we know, this has had major consequences and implications for women and their right to abortion. But of course, we know that um, with With the topic of abortion, we also talk about fetal brain development because this has been a very important uh, uh, topic make use of these arguments in order to really overturn Roe and in order to make a statement and make a make a case about why uh, we should not or we should have the right to abortion dr schopf let's start first, maybe by uh, looking into. Uh, your work, because uh, you have also worked uh, for for some, some time on um, fetal or prenatal brain development. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that particular work that you've uh, invested a lot of time in?
0: Yeah, of course. I'm very happy to tell you about uh, the things I investigated with uh, fetal brain development. It was more, it's like a, a study on like, are we really able to look at the brain in a fetal stage already, not only from an anatomical perspective, but also from a functional and metabolic perspective. And in the years when I did this research, it was not not straightforward at all. It was the time when everyone started talking about resting state networks. We were in the process in finding out how can we investigate the resting state networks in the adult brain, in the healthy brain. And there were a lot of studies coming up like, um, could resting state networks be used as biomarkers for specific diseases, for example, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and so on. And of course, the question after for afterwards was like, if we can look at a healthy adult brain versus a diseased brain, and probably look at biomarkers, can we investigate maybe at an earlier time point, especially in the developing brain, if there is something wrong. And if there's something wrong, could we already at a, at a stage where the baby would already be born? So if we would find out there is something wrong in the occipital part, so with seeing, could we then help the baby, like uh, help at an earlier stage? So, so help already with treatment or motor function. So but this was the idea. But what we did in our research, it was um, a very premature time, let's phrase it like that, because we also did not know how to analyze the data. Because with motion uh, correction, um, a fetal brain has a lot more degrees of freedom when the brain is investigated than a healthy adult brain. Because when you think of an MRI scanner, and when you have been in an MRI scanner, you know that your head gets kind of fixated. But when you investigate a fetal brain, you cannot really fixate the brain. So it's like freely flowing. And the earlier gestation weeks, uh, we investigated the more degrees of freedoms we had. So so we really had to start somewhere in investigating the networks and we were dealing with a lot of difficulties and different problems in the beginning. So we really tried to figure out, are we able to see networks and are we able to analyze them? And could we compare them across different gestational weeks? Could we find resting state networks and only at a later time in the research will we be able to find biomarkers. So this was really a proof of concept study in the beginning. And we were able to find uh, resting state networks. And at the later um, point in time, we were also able to combine uh, motion with resting state networks. For example, eye movement, we were able to connect it to the networks in the occipital cortex.
1: Okay. And and would you say that now after because you said that this was done at a time where, you know, the technology was probably not as advanced as nowadays, would you say that there are still very big limitations nowadays in order to investigate the fetal brain or the fetal uh, uh you know nervous system or is that something that has really been been ameliorated due to advances in technologies?
0: I mean, um especially when we talk about functional connectivity, it's always very basic research. Most of this research is not suitable to draw conclusion for a personal perspective or for one single patient or for one single fetus, like looking at a cohort of healthy subjects we could draw a conclusion for all of them, but we could even at, at the stage now where we are a lot more advanced, it all depends on how good is the quality of the data. And uh, as I said before, like if you're able to get good images and to be able to correct them appropriately due to the motion, but to draw a conclusion for one subject is very tricky and uh, I would I would rather say investigations from a neuroimaging perspective of the fetal brain when it comes to fmri are not suitable to draw conclusion for a single subject.
1: What what do we know so far based on you know all these all this research looking into fra- fetal brain development what what do we know about fetal brain development?
0: we know a lot about fetal brain development, we know when different anatomical parts start to form or should be formed. We know when different connection start to grow. We know um, when different movement movements give us an indication there could be something wrong in the nervous system. So there has been a lot of research already. But One of the things we should not neglect is, I mean, MRI is like, I mean, I've been working with this technique for a lot of years, so it is a fancy technique and it looks great. And we can like, have a lot of movies done and we see the baby or the fetus floating around, but a lot about the anatomical structures, especially at the, later gestation we can also be very clearly and very well be investigated with ultrasound. So there is no big machinery necessary and no stress for the mother as well. Definitely depends on how active the fetus is and like where in the womb the the fetus is situated and like how much gestational fluid is there uh, is in there. So. It really depends. The less movement, the
1: bigger the head, more on the outside, the better. How has neuroscience contributed to legal discussions or legal cases such as, for example, Roe v. Wade?
0: Yeah, there has been like... uh, I think neuroscience every now and then, at least every year, pops up in a context about mind reading. So, fMRI has been in the focus of like, can we investigate where a murder has taken place, for example, or could it be used for a lie detector test? And I mean, this is a very, I, I, I get where this is coming from. I mean, there has been a lot of research going on and a lot of research with a lot of money, must lead to some outcome that people could use. But most of the research is for basic science and not for application. And even though it might be very intriguing, we would never we're never able to really read someone's mind. This is not possible. And I think it's very hard for people to understand But why if you have these fancy pictures and you can say, oh, if I train an algorithm, I could clearly investigate uh, if like someone is thinking about houses or words because it's different areas in the pre in the brain. Yeah, but um, the answer is, I mean, this technique has not been intended for this use and we are not without a free will. So if I want to think about something else, and I am the murderer, you will never be able to find out where the murder scene is, no matter how good your algorithm was trained. But I understand if, like, if it's taken out of context, people think, I mean, you're smart, you're a scientist, just make it happen. And I think uh, this is also what happens in this very neuroethical case. Because um people thought like, I mean, we know a lot about fetal development. Can we like can't we draw conclusions for for a big cohort? But the answer is we can't and we shouldn't.
1: I'm sure that um there is a lot of neuroscientific findings that were also taken um probably even out of context. For example, if we look at Um, uh, uh, the study by the scientist uh, Gian Domenico Iannetti, who is a pain expert um, and really has um, um, made studies into fetal pain, Um, many... So, his work was really actually he he claims that his work was actually misinterpreted and misused, so as you state taken out of context to support the anti abortion law um in this in the United States so do you see that there are um, uh, disadvantages of Um, you know, the the science communication aspect of many neuroscientific findings and how these implications can be uh, misused to support some cases when in fact that's not what they are meant to to do or what they are meant to convey?
0: I think the difficulty is that um, as scientists we are Used to communicate our findings, our results to our peers, and we use our very specific language. So, so we know if we're not able to find something, it does not mean it's not there. It just means we did not find it. And, um, when people from a very, very, very different field who are not used to the language, Read this, they probably would draw different conclusions out of it. So, I don't actually see it as a problem of science communication because, like, I mean, scientists do science because they want to do science and they want to advance their field, be better in their field. And to do that, they communicate it to their peers and only in a second step. communicated to the outside world, whatever the outside world is. But whenever like a scientist or researcher is asked, like, can you give a a public science talk? Like the most important question we always ask is like, who is the audience? How educated is the audience? Because you, you need to use other language, you need to describe the findings you have, like in a in a very, very different manner. And I think when lawyers or whoever wants to make a claim and try to use information in a different context, they should really approach the researchers themselves and ask them, did I understand this correctly? Because those papers, they have never been meant to be like a subject to be treated as evidence in court if and only if it it should be treated as evidence then like with the person who wrote the article and telling okay this is how this was meant and also like i don't know i've written this article four years ago now our knowledge is blah 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 because i mean what we read in papers is always old knowledge the new knowledge is Um, transported and reported at conferences at scientific meetings, or probably not even that because people are afraid that the information they just recently found out is scooped. So I think it's very important to integrate the people who did or are doing the research into this conversation.
1: That's 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 a very, very good point, because I was also about to ask, like how can we avoid these misinterpretations, and how can we really uh, um, um, ameliorate this transfer of knowledge? Because maybe I would think that this is a science communication problem, but I think you have a very good point in saying that's not the issue. The issue is more making sure to involve the scientists that underwent the study and that are the best at explaining it, at understanding the results in such um, endeavors, in such uh, especially legal cases that can really impact the lives of, of many, um, as we've seen, of course, in 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 the recent events of Roe v. Wade. Now, I want to go into more personal questions i would say and maybe questions where i would really like more of your not only scientific perspective as a scientist but also your personal uh, perspective as a woman how do you view abortion um first starting from your viewpoint as a scientist so really from a professional uh, perspective
0: um i think this is a very tricky question when i uh started to work at the new radiology department. I was like, I would still say a young scientist and I, I never thought about uh, abortion. I never thought about miscarriages. Like I was still uh, at an age where also my, my, my friends did not have kids. So I never uh, got in contact. Like what happens if someone has to have an abortion? And then I was there every day in the morning at seven o'clock, looking at fetuses that were like highly deformed sometimes. And sawing those mothers go into the scan room and they were my age, or sometimes they were even younger. I was like, oh, oh, okay. They're not subjects. So it's like you really, so I really needed to differentiate the thing That i am investigating and i so want to make it wanted to make it happen that we were able to analyze fetal images fmri images for the first time in subjects and this was like my main goal but also on the other hand they were they were suffering they were mothers, they were my age. So this was the first time I got in contact. I think it's a very personal decision women have to make there. I'm very happy that I live in a country where you can decide, where you have a lot of people helping you to find the right decision with psychological support, medical support, you also don't have to make the decision right away. So you have a really good network. And I always think it's the woman's choice. And uh, I think, I mean, things like this happened, uh, overturn of row versus weight does not happen because we have new scientific adva- uh, knowledge. It happens because patriarchy is threatened by women. And it is very hurtful to see that, very, very hurtful.
1: I seriously have goosebumps with with what you just said. Patriarchy is threatened by women. I think there is no other way of seeing it because you, you are absolutely right. None of these decisions were made because of new findings, new scientific findings um, that that can back up many of those arguments, and 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 that's definitely a a pity.
0: The mother mortality rate in the U. S. is threatening for years yeah. since the nineteen nineties. I mean, it's it was double the number than it was in European countries, and also when we look at the health inspe- expectancy combined with um, the money spent for healthcare oh my God, yeah. the US was at such a low number. And this is like, what was it for me where I thought like, oh my God, those numbers will be even worse. Even bigger, yeah. It, yeah. it, will, be, it will be a disaster. Like not giving women the access to healthcare they need. And now, I mean, now we are at a stage we, like we hear it on the news nearly every day rape victim victims not yeah. giving the opportunity i mean we we cannot even think about the the mental health impact this has for these women but also like uh i mean people dying because they're not getting uh, i don't know the the english word but a cure How uh, how can this even be i mean this, this this can't be no person in the right mind who really cares about women in general can agree on this is a law that makes any sense in in a, in terms of healthcare. So I was like I was shook really.
1: Yeah I, 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 I can I can understand. And given given that that I want to hang on to that thought where you said you know this was a law that was overturned without without the right Um, scientific evidence to support it or any scientific evidence to support it how how do you feel that um, this decision like do you feel at all that it undermines your work or the work of neuroscientists in any way
0: i mean i think that the u.s has a history in doing things like that. So I mean, there is like, they're very popular documentaries and online streaming services when it comes to like sugar in cereals or nicotine in cigarettes. So uh, people have known for quite a while that the amount of sugar in cereals is connected to to healthy customers. They, They knew it, but they also knew People would buy more cereals and consume more cereals if there's more sugar in there. Yeah. And the same thing for nicotine in cigarettes. The industry had, been, had known for a while that nicotine causes cancer. And they, they still were, were asked in court and under oath said, like, no, we, we don't know anything about that. And then this was their evidence. And then there was no ban. There was no law. And it took a while for those things to be like also uh, shown from uh, from uh, unbiased scientists, or give, so that unbiased scientists had the opportunity to do studies on those cases and showed the exact opposite. But I mean, it's now not even science yeah. can like do research on those things anymore. Yeah, and this is like what is really. That terrifies me it terrifies me as a woman when I did when I did those studies I got letters that threatened me oh wow uh, they were directed to my private address they were directed to uh, the address of my university I got emails and at that time I, I thought you know I mean I'm a mathematician like I, I'm just interested in the data. I just want to make it work. I just want to know if we are able to yeah. do fMRI in fetuses. Yeah, That was my intention. It was never my intention to like figure out if it's okay to abort a fetus. Yeah. But yeah. this is like w- what happens also to, to people doing those research. You can't be a- as altruistic as you want to be. But I mean, I really like my life. And my job is my job. But if I am threatened for my life, there's just a certain line at some point. And I we don't have to be all heroes. It really threatens the the freedom of science. And this is what I'm really scared of.
1: The freedom of science is, is at stake here. Now, if we look more on a, on a you know, European context, because this, of course, has, has taken place in, in, um, in the US, in the United States. Um, do you see this decision affecting in any way European laws on abortion?
0: I hope not. But I don't know. I mean, I really, wanted, I, I really want to say no because like Europe is strong and uh... but I mean there are so many crises going on all at once and I sometimes say I live in a clown country we overturn decisions based on scientific knowledge when it comes to the COVID crisis yeah so I hope not yeah but and also, I don't see a discussion going in this direction. But uh, we know how easy things can change on a government perspective, from a on a governmental level.
1: Yeah.
0: So not that long ago, we had a government in place uh, where they suddenly questioned uh, same-sex marriage. And it was like, what? No. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I, I hope not. Yeah,
1: yeah. It is not very far-fetched to see an impact of the overturning of Roe v. Wade on research on embryos. Um, because, of course, you know, stopping uh, uh, or, or um, um, yeah, making abortion illegal is, of course, one thing. And that has a major impact on women's health and mental health. But I can also imagine that this will have and definitely has uh, implications on the use of um, of embryos for research purposes. And of course, this brings us back to the, 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 the Bush administration, where uh, the use of embryos from public funding uh, was banned. Um, do you see something as such taking place
0: sometimes when those uh, things are overturned, and uh, suddenly, some kind of research or research focuses are forbidden or not seeing in a right way, or um, then the the public is suddenly surprised that nothing is going on. Uh, like there are no, there's no new knowledge. And what I wanted to say with that, like, um, like the, there's a European law that forbid research on uh, monkeys yep. and this like impacted the whole scientific community. It did not only impact small fields, it impacted the whole scientific community. People built their careers on that. And I'm not saying, oh, okay, I mean, we should not feel sad for those people. This, we saw this coming for a long time. But if we're not able to use model organisms, I mean, we have to start testing somewhere. I mean, every shampoo you buy, every everything you you drink, everything you eat, it has to be tested somehow. Do you want to test it? Do you want to be a subject and people just don't think ahead sometimes and and for like going into a direction where we, where we probably will not be able to research with embryonic stem cells. We couldn't even imagine which impact this would have on, on science in general. And also like, uh, I mean, especially the us, they, um, Oh my God, they have so much research money. They have like been the Eldorado for you people. Can't. Everyone wanted to go there for their postdoc. It's like, oh my God, you have so beautiful labs, you pay your summer students. Oh my God. But there is not only a lot of public funding, there's also a lot of private funding. And if all those Republicans who helped to overturn this ruling are not sponsoring research anymore, people don't think ahead what will happen i mean i don't know i'm not an endocrinologist i don't work in research for vaccinations but this will be this will be i even that the, the the thought of it is horrifying
1: i i i totally understand it i mean even you mentioned vaccines but even vaccines now are being questions right i mean let's yeah. let's let's not even go down that road i think you you said it very very bluntly science is is at stake here the importance of science the yeah what what science has to offer is really being questioned science as a whole is not being um you know taken seriously anymore scientists are not being taken seriously anymore and of course we see already with overturning such a such a major law such a major uh, um um yeah uh what what many might think is a is a fundamental human right, you know, that a woman would have a choice over her own body. Even even that is 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 at stake nowadays because there is no uh, uh, trust in science. No we talked a bit about how how you felt working in the field of uh, a fetal uh a brain development and neurodevelopment did you ever think because you 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 mentioned at the beginning saying that you know my my aim was very very clear i simply want to you know investigate whether we can uh, in any way uh, measure fetal uh, the fetal brain did you ever think that your work or that of your colleagues could have such a big impact on society probably At the time, not very much. But now looking back, how do you describe your role in in that field?
0: Definitely. And I have like a fun example for it. Um, So um, you asked me why I left the field of the the field of brain research. I mean, it was just like as a scientist, you go where the money goes and where you have the opportunities. And as I said, I was interested in those algorithms. So how can you deal with tricky data? So I started to enter the field of fMRI, when it was on book to investigate what happens if the brain doesn't do it, like if we don't. So I entered the field when uh, it was on book to investigate what happens if we do nothing is the brain on a standby mode. And We knew, I mean, the brain does something, but it was just so tricky to analyze the data and nobody knew like which algorithms can be used. And like, if we would be able to do it for a single subject, how could we investigate it for a cohort of people? So that's when I entered. And, uh, this opportunity with fetal imaging just emerged because I switched departments, I had this awesome boss who was a pioneer and i thought oh i i i want to help her like i want to have a look uh, if we could investigate the, those little brains and then uh i got the opportunity for a professorship at a, at a university and i wanted to make use out of these algorithms we created so i thought like i really want to investigate the brain if we like if we lose something if we lose a sense, and I, I did my PhD in olfaction. So I thought like, oh, so let's investigate, because I knew a lot about olfaction, let's investigate what's hap- what happens if you lose the sense of smell. And I did all this basic research on what happens to the brain on a metabolical level, on a functional level, and also if you could use uh, clinical testing as a predictor if your sense of smell would ever come back and every talk i ever gave during my career was like to convince people how important the sense of smell is and like to help them imagine what like how devastating it is for people if they lose the sense of smell little have i known (laughs) that there comes a pandemic along where like everyone suddenly (laughs) would understand what I said in the first fifty minutes of every talk I ever gave. Because I was Oh, the sense of smell is really it's so important. But this is like what basic science is all about. You just do what you're offered to do also where your brain takes you. I knew a lot about olfaction. I knew fMRI, I put those things together. And uh, it just came natural to me. I never thought there would come a a very fun illness, along uh, that has this as a as a major condition. That also that probably could be used as a predictor. So I don't know. I mean, uh, you never know where research takes you.
1: How do you see then the role of neuroscientists or scientists in in you know in terms of their? So societal responsibilities. Given the the example that you just gave, but also in in the light of recent events, with with the, those major implications on abortion, for example.
0: As I said in the beginning, I think it's always important to include those people in the discussion. The people who did the work, also like early on work, uh, to to put it to help put it into perspective. So. I do like work for, for court when it comes to insurance cases for people who lost their sense of smell, because uh, in Austrian law, losing a sense when it's the sense of smell, um, no one knows how to deal with it. It's a lot easier if you lose the sense of hearing or the sense of vision. So I'm asked and I, I look at, um, I look at all. The different points of knowledge. If it's like a uh, clinical testing, I look at the papers, and I say, Oh, okay, it's likely that this will come back or not. I just give my point of opinion. I'm not a physician. I never said I am a physician, but I am like helping put those things in perspective. And that's what's missing here. It's like, look at all the puzzle pieces, and like, give a prediction would it make sense? Or not? And this is like, translating what is in papers for the person who needs the information at the moment. And it's always I think it's a I mean, I don't know, maybe like, some point in time, we have uh, different points of information. And then we put puzzle pieces together and know more about it. I mean, that's what the basic science is all about, putting more pieces to the puzzle. But I I think our societal uh, duty is to help translate those puzzle uh, pieces to the society.
1: I want to end with a, a final question. Given what we discussed today, do you think that there wasn't enough of a push from the scientific community to help in avoiding the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Do you think the scientific community could have done more in bringing forth scientific evidence that is currently in place that might, you know, refute those those blunt statements that abortions should not take place?
0: I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think the problems if the, if the I don't know, if the outcry would have been louder, people sometimes or lawmakers sometimes say, oh, that's their opinion. But it's not an opinion. It's like the knowledge we have at this moment in time. And that's the difference with the law. The law is written and you can interpret it and then that's the law opinion. But science is not an opinion. Science is fact. And if you don't want to see it that way. That's what will happen. We will never give up. I mean, never. And we should never give up. And we should never shut up. So I think it's important. Also, even if here in Europe, we think we're kind of in a safe zone when it comes to those things, we probably aren't, but we should never be silent, especially as women, as leaders in different fields. We should always like encourage other women to speak up. And that's my message.
1: Thank you very much for this very insightful uh, conversation. Sometimes I think we tend to forget, um, as scientists, as people working in the field, of how important our work is and how big the implications of our work can be. Um, And I think this, this, for me at least, is a reminder of... Um, not only to to be aware of how important any you know any niche within neuroscience how important that is and you just also clearly stated who would have thought that the olfactory sense or that the olfactory system would really have such a such a big impact on our lives but of course uh, um COVID, COVID-19 has, has proved otherwise, but also things such as fetal brain development, where probably in your research, you were simply interested in, in, a, in a certain mechanism or in a certain functionality. We now see how making use of science and sometimes even misinterpreting it can really have some detrimental uh, impacts on society at large. Um, with that, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank our audience for tuning in. Stay curious, stay critical, and see you next time.